Let's uh Let's do it. Okay. So as many of you probably realize over the next two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on the subject of homosexuality. And um, just to say, there will be opportunity for questions um, at the end of both messages, this week and next week. Here's where we're going to go. This week, I'm going to introduce the topic, which needs to be done and done well. So I'll take uh, probably um, 10 or 15 minutes on that. And then we'll have about 30 minutes looking through the Bible at the texts that speak specifically into the subject or that help to bring some clarity on it. So we'll work through the key passages in the Bible over that time. And then we will finish with um, answering the question, really, if you are someone here that would uh, describe yourself as a homosexual that wants to follow Jesus, what to do? What's the response? What, how, how, as a church, do, would we respond to that? Then next week we will look at, um, have they discovered a homosexual gene? Um, and just look at that a little bit. Um, We'll look at how is, the, is a homosexual lifestyle a safe one. And then we will look at arguments from people who call themselves Christians, people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians, but that are very sympathetic to the homosexual lifestyle. We'll look at some of the arguments that they would bring and see where we go from there. Now, in terms of as a, as a, as a Bible-believing Christian, to defend to the world certain beliefs on homosexuality is kind of par for the course. I guess you imagine that sooner or later you have to do that. But to find yourself having to defend that to other people that name Jesus as their Lord and name the book as their holy scripture is kind of staggering in, in many ways. And I'm sure that will unfold as we go through the next couple of weeks. But I thought today we would start with a very ironic article to set the scene by way of introduction. It's an article that was written in the Times, 2003, written by a man who would describe himself as a gay atheist. Um, And uh, he's one of the Times' most well-known columnists, Matthew Paris, Um, very respected journalist, very good thinker, very articulate man. And he wrote this article around the time where there was the whole furore about gay bishops, which first kicked off in around 2003. So I'm going to read this to you. Um, by Matthew Paris. I've not added anything to it, but I have taken some things out. So it is edited, um, but that's simply, I've not edited anything particularly by means of content, but just to cut it down a bit for our purposes today. But I think it's a very insightful um, article, considering it's written by someone who describes himself as a gay atheist. He titles it this, No, God would not have approved of gay bishops. Here we go. As it happens, I do not believe in the mind of God. But Christians do, and must strive to know more of it. Nothing they read in the Old and New Testaments gives a scintilla of support to the view that the God of Israel was an inclusive God, or inclined to go with the grain of human nature. Much they read suggests a righteous going against the grain. Certainly it is true that Jesus departed from conventional Jewish teaching in the emphasis he put on forgiveness, but neither the story, for example, of the woman taken in adultery, nor the parable of the prodigal son, suggests that he countenanced the continuation of the sins of either. What these stories teach is that repentance is acceptable to God, however late it comes, and that the virtuous should not behave in a vindictive manner towards sinners. That is a very different thing from a shoulder-shrugging chuckle of different strokes for different folks. When the row over the appointment of gay bishops first blew up, I expected being gay to join the side of the Christian modernisers. But try as I do to summon up enthusiasm for my natural allies, sorry as I feel for homosexuals struggling to reconcile their sexuality with their membership of the church, and strive though I have to feel angry at the conservative evangelicals, passion fails me. I know why. Inclusive, moderate or sensible Christianity is inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac. The church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. Stripped of the supernatural, the church is on a losing wicket. Jesus was never reluctant to challenge received wisdoms that he wanted to change. He gives no impression that he came into the world to revolutionise sexual mores. Even our eye, if it offends us, must be plucked out. So this, in summary, is my charge against the Anglican modernists. Can they point to biblical authority... For what, on any estimate, amounts to a disturbing challenge to the values assumed in both Testaments? 
No. Can they honestly say that they would have drawn from Christ's teaching the same lessons of sexual tolerance in 1000 AD or 1590 or indeed 1950? Surely not, for almost no such voices were heard then. Revelation, therefore, not logic, must lie at the core of the church's message. You cannot pick and choose from revealed truth. The path to which the compass points may be a stony one, but this should not matter to a believer. We could probably end the sermon there. <laughs> Amazing? The biggest threat to a vibrant and power-filled relationship with Jesus is swapping the real Jesus for one of your own making. The Bible describes Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One without the other is a caricature. If you have just the Lion or just the Lamb, you are caricaturing Jesus. You end up with an incomplete and an unauthentic Jesus. Over these two weeks, Jesus is going to be central to both messages. As the Lion of Judah, we mustn't remove his teeth. We mustn't file down his claws and domesticate him so that he becomes manageable and safe. The Bible is clear that the Lion of the tribe of Judah roars from Zion, his holy hill, against all idolatry, willful sin and sexual immorality. He doesn't need our permission to do this. He doesn't need us to agree with him to do this. He's the Lord. He does as he pleases. The Bible says no one can ward off his hand. No one can hold him to account and say, what have you done? And expect an answer. He's the Lord. He's not accountable to anyone. He's not on a committee. He's sovereign. He's the king. But he's also the lamb. And as Christians, we must not hide or cover over the fact, the truth, that Jesus died for those in a homosexual lifestyle as well as for those in a heterosexual lifestyle so that he might bring complete forgiveness. Jesus welcomes those who are attracted to the same sex in the same way that he welcomes those who are attracted to the opposite sex, offering reconciliation, offering cleansing, offering transformation to both groups based on the same grounds. Repentance from sin and trust in him. And so the key question is, is homosexuality, is homosexual practice a sin? Now you can't answer that question scientifically because it's a moral question. Science doesn't even pretend to answer moral questions. It's a question that can only be answered on religious grounds because if you, ju if you just try and answer it morally without referring to a higher authority, you're really creating your own morality. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a system, a framework of your own making. It has no authority. Biblically, the question can be answered. And my aim is to do that today. Now it might seem a bit mean and a bit vindictive, almost like a witch hunt to try to discern is homosexual practice a sin? It's like, it seems like a witch hunt. Why do it? Here's why. In the Bible, sin is described as sickness and Jesus describes himself as a doctor. Christians are about healing. If we're not about healing, I don't know what we're about. We're about healing of the soul. So if you want to be healed, you must acknowledge what is wrong. You must acknowledge your condition. You must acknowledge where you are at. Even on a physical level, you know, if, you're, if you are diagnosing someone and you find a cancer there, you must work out, what do we do here? If, if it's not cancer, then leave it be. If it is, cut it out. Likewise, when it comes to issues of what is sin, what isn't sin, we must be clear. Is it or isn't it? Is it timelessly wrong before God and needs removing? Or is it just, well, you know, it's a... It's a cultural things, some people like this, some people don't. You need to be clear from the Bible. There's been a huge shift in the last few decades in the West on this whole subject. You, you surely realise that, massively. Since time immemorial, homosexual lifestyle, the homosexual act has been seen as immoral, harmful, deviant um, in societies down the ages. And yet in the last, I guess, 20, 30 years or so in the West, it's now seen as fine. Now many see this as an enlightenment. They see it as a step towards a greater understanding. It's like, it's like pro we're, we're progressing. We're doing better. We're, we're, that, that, whole, that whole old way of thinking is falling away because we're moving towards a greater understanding. So it's seen as a movement forward, but Bible believers see it as a movement backward. See it as backsliding. We see it as another step towards moral oblivion. 
And if you're in that second position, you need to know why you think that. You can't just shout it out loud and think that, you know, and just kind of, no, no, no. you need to know why, why do you think, it can't just be that we're actually deep down, I just don't like it. What does God think? What does God say? Because if it is a sin, and you want to follow Jesus, or if you are following Jesus, and it is a sin, then that practice must be renounced, and it must be resisted on moral and spiritual grounds. If it's not a sin, then it's no problem. Follow Jesus and embrace the lifestyle. It's as simple as that. Now, during these two sessions, you will notice that I will not refer to people who are attracted to the same sex as gay or homosexual. It may slip out every now and then, but I'm, in my, I'm, in, I'm doing my best to break that habit. Um, I'll refer to them as either same-sex attracted or indulging in homosexual practice. Why? For a very profound reason. I believe it's been an unhelpful and inaccurate shift in perception, in the way the whole subject of homosexuality is perceived and propagated. Um, for centuries, it's been seen as really just a manifestation of human idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? It's where you swap your affections for the true God, the Creator, with anything else that is created. So it could be another person, it could be yourself, it could be an inanimate object, but you swap. So, so the worship, what is worship? Worship is ultimate affection, that sense of the, your strongest passion, your strongest desire. So your, your, your desire and your worship for God is replaced and he's moved out of the way and in his place is put either, it could be anything, some other person, your own situation, your own life, it could be inanimate things, car, it could be a particular lifestyle or a particular set of values, but there's a replacement that goes on. Well, for, for years, for centuries, homosexual practice has been seen from a biblical perspective and society has tended to go along with it, but it's just another manifestation, really, of idolatry. The Bible sees it like this. All people are sinners and we all do different kinds of sins and this is one of them. However, I think the Bible also makes it clear that our sins, although they do affect what we are, and what we are affects the way we sin, in another sense, you cannot put together those sins and say, that is part of that person's God-given personhood. You can't say, that sinning that they do is part of their true God-given identity. That is completely inaccurate, I think, from a biblical perspective. Now, where the gay rights movement have been very effective is arguing that same-sex attracted people that their sexual orientation, if you like, and, 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 and the homosexual lifestyle is fundamental to who they are as people, fundamental to their very identity. Now this then makes it very tricky to challenge the whole thing because you receive the, you're, you're perceived as attacking the person right in the core of who they are. You're, you're perceived as rejecting them and you're perceived as saying, no, you can't really be what you are because it's wrong. And so the person feels like, ah, oh, my very personhood has been attacked here. This is really unfair. And I think if that was true, then it would be unfair. Absolutely. But I don't believe it's true. I think it's error. I think to challenge homosexuality in a spirit of love actually opens the door to healing and to transformation. You see, historically the church has been perceived in two camps. The first camp is the liberal camp. Now their basic approach to the Bible is this. It's kind of like, oh, I'm not going to do it. Imagine me standing on the Bible. And the idea is, is that ultimately I'm above the Bible in the sense that I take the bits I like and the bits I don't like. So we'll laugh at the virgin birth. We'll laugh at the fact Jesus rose again physically from the dead and other various things. We think, well, it's just cultural, whatever. Take and leave what you like. Basically, you decide what you're going to go for in the end. The other, the second camp is a bit more like the condemnation brigade, the hellfire and brimstone. You know, if you don't, if you don't dot every religious I that I dot and cross every spiritual T that I cross, you know, you're going to be destroyed and I'm going to be smiling about it. That kind of approach. That's the second camp. And the, really the response to the, the whole homosexual thing has been seen in one of two camps. Well, let's create a third camp today. Are you up for that? <laughs> I don't think either of those are particularly appealing. Um, let's go down the, sort of the biblical route. Now, what is this third camp? It's kind of radical, but let's do it. The third camp is this, is that on the one hand we are submitted to scriptural revelation. We do not fiddle around with what the Bible says is sin. We daren't, we tremble at God's word. It's revelation. Okay? It's not as if God is, it's not as if, well, this was written a few thousand years ago and God probably didn't really see what was quite going to happen and how people were going to develop. And so this has really caught him out, this whole homosexuality thing. It's ridiculous. The Bible presents God as outside of time, transcendent, and that he's revealed his timeless will and his timeless character to us through his word. 
And so in that sense, we have to say, no, 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 we, we, what the Bible says is sin, is sin. And I'm going to get used to the fact that as a believer, I'm going to be doing a lot of changing. <laughs> he never is, and I'm always going to be. That's the journey. It's a journey of change, a journey of transformation. It's not comfortable, but that's the way it is. That's the first part of the third camp that I want to introduce. But secondly, also I would say that in this third camp, we reach out in love and in kindness to people of all lifestyles. Utterly regardless of their lifestyle, we love. Because weren't we loved like that by God? He reached out to us when we weren't even looking for him, very many of us. He's just pursued us. There's this overflow love, and so we reach out to all people regardless of their lifestyle. We're not put off by whatever particular uh, values they have or compulsions or addictions, etc. And we help people walk free from them if they are willing. If they're not, we love them anyway. That's Revelation Church. That's the third camp. That's where we stand. So am I saying that we believe that homosexual practice is perverted and wrong? Yes. The Bible is clear. And I will look at that later as we go on. But yes. Would we allow someone in a homosexual, actively homosexual lifestyle to be a member of Revelation Church? No. Can they attend the church? Absolutely. Anyone can attend the church as long as they like to get a feel for what these Christians are really about. Okay, what's it like being a Christian? How do you get to find out if you're not around the church? Of course, anyone is absolutely welcome. Would we say you can be a member? No, we can't. Why not? Because we are not just a club. We're God's household. We don't decide who comes in and who doesn't. God has said. God's made it clear in his word and we're just going to submit to that. So we wouldn't allow an adulterer in the church. Someone's an adulterer, can I just come in? No. You can't be a member. Someone who's sleeping around outside of marriage. Can I, no. You can't, you can't be a member of the church here. You can't, no. Why not? Because God says. It's his house. It's not our house. It's not some sort of thing we've decided on. God says. Makes it very, very clear. To allow it would, to be, going, would be, to be going against the master's wishes and would actually rob the gospel and this church of the transforming power that should mark us. To try and synchronise a holy God with the corrupt and rebellious world is a bad cocktail. God's people try and do it a lot all through the book and it always ends in big bad trouble. We're not to do that. We mustn't do that. The Bible is clear that if someone insists on, sex, on being sexually immoral and won't repent, then you put them out of the church in the hope that they will repent so that you can restore them. And the Bible says if you don't do that, it's, it, the image is like um, yeast and a loaf. A little bit of yeast affects the whole loaf, the Bible says. So you have someone that is in that lifestyle and they're going to be part of the church and just get in, and live in that kind of lifestyle, whether it's heterosexual sexual immorality, homosexual sexual immorality, or whatever other variations there are, in the church it will affect the whole loaf. You will make us spiritually vulnerable. All kinds of terrible things could happen. It's not allowed. So the big question is this. Is it immoral? Is homosexual, homosexual practice immoral? Can we put it under that umbrella? What's moral, what's immoral? Well, you probably want to look in the Bible by now. You're probably thinking, yeah, get to the Bible. Let's get to the Bible. Let's start in Genesis. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Well, Genesis 2 we're going to look at today. Now, why is Genesis 1 and 2 so important? Well, because in the first two chapters of the Bible, and the last two chapters of the Bible, you have the only, the only parts of the Bible where there's no sin. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's very special. This is, this is how God wants it. So everything here, in here is great and good. There's no bad stuff. So you're having a bad day? Read either the last two or the first two chapters. It's all good. There's nothing fallen or flawed about it. Ephesians 1 verse 10 says that God's intention is to reunite all things again under Christ's headship. Colossians, um, Colossians 1 verse 20 speaks about God reconciling all things back to himself through Christ. So what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's desire to reconcile all things back to that place again in the future. So we look at Genesis 1 and 2 and we are let in on some big deals. God's ultimate purpose is to restore what it was like both individually but cosmically. God's got a plan. This whole thing's going somewhere, yeah? It's not just kind of random. There's a big story going on and it's all about God reconciling all things back to himself through Christ and establishing Christ as the head over all things. And so Genesis 1 and 2 yields some amazing treasures for us. So let's just read um, chapter 2 verse 18 and then verse 21 to 25. 
The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we have the man and the woman, sexual beings, sexually compatible, sexually attracted, joined sexually for an exclusive lifelong relationship. This is God's first and last word on sexual morality. That's it. Sexual immorality is everything that does not fit into this scenario. There is no other sexual activity outside of that that's affirmed in the Bible. And the Bible is not naive. It refers to a lot of others. It refers to bestiality, fornication, prostitution, rape, same-sex attraction, incest, polygamy. They're all mentioned. But the Bible's not ignorant that this is what the world is like. But only marriage is affirmed although this other list are treated in different ways. Some are treated more severely than others, as we might find out as we go on today. But marriage is the only sexual situation, if you like, that is affirmed scripturally. This is how we interpret biblically what is moral, what's immoral. You might say, that is ridiculous. You've just read, like, you read something last about 20 seconds, and you said, on that, you're saying that is what is immoral, that is what is moral. Yeah. <laughs> it's God's word. It's God's word. And it works, but we'll, that's more for next week. But it's God's work. And if you decide on another path, the danger with that is that at the end of the day, you end up creating your own criteria. Well, I'll, 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 no, this, surely, but not this. Well, on what, on what authority can you say that? On what grounds ultimately are you saying this, but not this? You need to know, you need to be able to say, well, on, on this grounds. And I'll say to you today, on biblical grounds... Sexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden by God and causes a lot of trouble. We mustn't try and become the lawmaker. We mustn't usurp God's place. That is not a good thing. Let me just quote you from a book um, by Robert Gagnon called The Bible and Homosexual Practice. If you are very clever and very scholarly, buy it. <laughs> it's been very, very helpful for this, but it's not the sort of book you saw. It's not bedtime reading by a long shot. I mean, it's heavy stuff. But he says this. He's referring to Paul and his uh, passage in Romans, we'll look at later. And he also refers to Leviticus, which we'll look at in just a minute. He says, Paul, in effect, argues that even pagans who have no access to the book of Leviticus should know that same-sex eroticism is contrary to nature because the primary sex organs fit male to female, not female to female or male to male. Again, by fittedness, I mean not only the glove-like physical fit of the penis and vagina, but also clues to complementarity provided by procreative capacity, the ability to have children, and the capacity for mutual and pleasurable stimulation. For Paul, it was a simple matter of common sense observation of human anatomy and procreative function that even pagans, otherwise oblivious to God's direct revelation in the Bible, had no excuse for not knowing. Let's move on to the first instance of homosexuality explicitly described in the Bible, which is, of course, the story of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, very, very famous, Genesis 19. Now, this, I'm not going to read the whole story because time won't allow us. I'll give you the headlines. Two angels in human form go to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're out in the um, streets at night, and Lot, who is the only righteous man in the city, invites the guys in. And then horror of horrors as the night goes on, suddenly there's this clamouring outside, and the men of the city have come out, and they demand that Lot lets the angels out so that they might basically have their way with them sexually um, and then discard them. Um, an amazing miracle happens and all the good guys get rescued, just in case you're worried. So, but that's the story. Now, you see, historically, Christians have defended their stance on homosexuality through this story. Um, even terms like sodomy and sodomites has come out of this whole thing. You would realise that. However, this, is view is, this has been challenged of late by those who are questioning the traditional biblical stance on homosexuality, they've been challenging this. And um, actually, their challenge is pretty sound. <laughs> Basically, you cannot argue from this story alone that homosexuality is wrong. Why? Well, what's being said, they're saying things like this. One of the biggest sins of the city of Sodom was that they were inhospitable. Now, before you laugh, if you think that sounds ridiculous, you need to understand how hospitality is viewed in the Eastern culture. 
The city was inhospitable. It was a shame on a city if someone came into the town square and no one invited them in. Lot invited them in, so oh, quick, it was the only one. He wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been invited in, otherwise they would have just been attacked, as you can imagine. But they were inhospitable. That was a grave thing before God. God is big on hospitality. God is big on welcoming strangers and looking after people. Secondly, the, 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 the guys who are for homosexual practice argue this. Homosexual rape is a world away from a lifelong committed relationship between two people of the same sex. I think there's some sense in that. I think to argue that they're completely the same thing is illogical. No, they're not. And so I think, although it, it, you could definitely use it if you're trying to build a whole argument for the thing, in and of itself, it's not a strong argument for saying that homosexual practice is wrong. So let's go to Leviticus 18. Here we have the people of Israel in the wilderness, and God is given specific instructions as to how they are to live as his people and there are two um, references here. Firstly, Leviticus 18, verse 22, which says this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then Leviticus 20, verse 13, unpacks it a little bit more. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So, that seems pretty clear. But there are difficulties. What are those difficulties? Here they are. There is other sexual stuff on the list. Stuff that sometimes the church wouldn't even mention. For example, not to have sex with a woman when she's on her period. Big deal. Huge problems with penalties involved. Church is silent on it. And so those, those that are sort of pro-homosexual practice say, well, come on, they start, they start almost saying, well, are you being inconsistent here? You're making a big deal about this, but not about this. So it's a difficulty in terms of Working that out. Also, the difficulties is Old Covenant. This is Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant now. And so, you know, what, what are you saying? You're not allowed to eat pork either. You're not allowed to get your hair cut in certain ways, which is what Leviticus talks about. You're not allowed tattoos. It's all in the same book. And so, you see, there's some challenges just come. You think, oh, I think it's clear. But they're saying that's Old Covenant. The covenant's changed. So you, you're faced with that, and you have to kind of work that out. And so on grounds of consistency and on grounds of uncertainty around how much of the Levitical law to apply and how much not to, you're not, you don't develop a strong enough case. Now, we can argue against that in other ways, but I'm not going to spend loads of time. I'm just trying to be fair to the discussion as a whole and give you a sense of that. But what can we say from this? We can say if you were in the Old Covenant and you were a Jew, it was most definitely wrong to commit homosexual act. In fact, it's an abomination. So God felt very strongly about it, at least in that covenant in that time, and it was not to be tolerated among God's people. And so to argue that God is a God of tolerance and he lets all things happen, I think from we're, actually this gives us actually a fairly strong argument to say no, it's not the case. So the big question is, does it change in the new covenant? Is this something that changed? See, the pork does, isn't it? We eat pork now. You know, there's no more the offerings. Devil, devil, we don't do the offerings of the lamb and this and that. That's all changed. Certain rituals and ceremonies have changed. So has this thing changed now that we're in the new covenant? Well, let's go to Jesus. I'm not going to tell you to turn anywhere because he doesn't mention homosexuality once. And as you can imagine, those in favour of same-sex relationships celebrate Jesus' silence on this. And they say things like, well, they conclude that he thought it must have been fine. That's their argument. Jesus was silent on it, so it must be okay. Let's just explore that a little bit, shall we? Firstly, in Matthew 19, I'll just read to you what Jesus said about marriage, because this is important, and it will bring back what we started with. Verses 3 to 6, Jesus says, Well, the Pharisees came to him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What do we know from this passage? We see that Jesus upholds the creational view of marriage, doesn't see it as outdated or outmoded, doesn't see it as something that's gone to the past now. Jesus upholds it and says, No, look, this is, this is a creation ordinance of God and is a very, very profound thing. It's not out of date, it's not temporary, but it's binding and it's solemn. So we know, first of all, Jesus is for heterosexual marriage in a big way. Secondly, the current first century Jewish norm, so when Jesus was around, in his 
culture, they would, there would have been absolute agreement that homosexual practice was an abomination. Even though, even though it was um, a good few centuries, probably even over a thousand years since the law of Moses that I read about in Leviticus was written, even in this time, they, they were still held to that. No, this is an abomination. This is wrong. That was the general view, absolutely. Now, Jesus was not shy about challenging Jewish norms that had been misinterpreted or that he, through his coming, was superseding. Let me give you an example. Jesus challenged the, the religious leaders' view of divorce. He challenged their view of the Sabbath. He challenged their view of salvation. He challenged their view of the Messiah. He challenged their view of honouring parents. He challenged their view of righteousness. He challenged their view of clean and unclean foods. Now, if, the, if they had got it wrong, why didn't he challenge it? He most surely would have done why was he silent on this? So to argue that Jesus' silence shows his favour of homosexuality is dubious to the point of being comic. If anything, it demonstrates much more that Jesus was in agreement with them, that it was wrong. And thirdly, when it came to the moral law, Jesus upped the bar. You ever notice that? He's not Mr. Liberal, but Jesus is not ages. No, he ups the bar. So they, they, they were into this kind of whole thing of, you know, we know adultery is wrong, but let's try and find ways around it. Jesus says, no, don't look at a woman to lust after her. You think, oh, donk. Yeah? Well, I'm not going to actually murder him, but I'm going to... No, you're angry with your brother. It's as bad as murdering. Donk. When it came to the moral law, Jesus ups the bar. And so to say that Jesus would have been really casual about this thing, it just makes no sense at all. So his silence actually speaks much more in favour of the fact that Jesus was totally in line with the religious leaders on this one. But what about the apostles? Now this is massive. What did the apostles say? Because the Bible record states that Jesus entrusted them with the responsibility of putting pen to paper under the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that the church can know the mind of God until he returns. That's a big responsibility. Would you like that responsibility? Jesus said to the apostles, your job now, I'm going to speak to you many more things that you can't handle now, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll remind you of all the things so that you can write it down so that and, until Jesus Christ returns, the church knows the mind of God. So what do the apostles say about homosexual practice? Let's go to the man who, nearly wrote, who wrote nearly half of the New Testament, Paul. And um, if you want to go for his references on immorality, you've got 19 references on sexual immorality. All of them... Very, very strong. It says things like the wrath of God is coming on the sexually immoral. It says things like the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom. Very, very strong stuff. But if you're still not sure, it might not be immoral, we need something a little bit clearer, then you're left with three references. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10, and Romans 1. Now the Corinthians and the Timothy passage, surprise, surprise, they're arguing about. Okay, there's an argument around that one in terms of the discussion. And, and the argument goes... Um, Something like this, that the term there for homosexual could just be referring to a temple cult prostitute, which were very sort of um, frequent in those days, or it could be referring to homosexual rape. It, you know, the words are a little bit tricky. Now, you can argue on that, but I'm not going to, because I want to focus on the Romans 1, which everyone agrees is talking about consenting homosexual practice. And we're going to spend about 10 minutes in Romans 1. Are you up for that? This is heavy, isn't it? Sorry, guys. This is so heavy. You're doing really well. Um, but I just think, you know, I want, to just, I want to make you guys aware of the discussion, aware of where this is at, because this is very, very topical to our, our context in the West. So, Romans 1, verse 16, let's read, the, let's read to verse 27, shall we? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to 
dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I read a email or a website article recently on this on this passage written by someone who is pro homosexual practice and uh, if it wasn't so infuriating it would have been laughable really he argued no Paul what Paul is saying here is that it's not that God thinks it's wrong what Paul's saying here is that it's just socially you know unacceptable okay well what's the context verse 18 for the wrath of God I mean, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Does it say anything about social stigma in this passage? No. I mean, if you're going to go biblical, go biblical. I'm not trying to be nasty or cruel. I just think, come on, it's God's word. You can't just fiddle around. You've got to make up what it means. You can't just say, well, it means this to me. It's not the point. What does God mean? It doesn't matter what it means to you. What does God mean? We're into some, we still Bible study. It means this to me. What does it mean to you? It means that to you. That's nice. Let's go home. What is God saying? Isn't that what it is? It's God's word. What does God say? Well, you know by ye, firstly, the first rule of hermeneutics, which is Bible interpretation, is this. What's the obvious interpretation? That's the first rule. The scholars say that. Read it like you're a kid. That's probably what it means. The next thing is this. Look for the context. What's the context? The wrath of God, the sinfulness of man. I mean... Please. So th- that was a bit silly. So I thought, okay, let's just. But there are some other arguments, believe it or not, that are made that are perhaps a little bit stronger. And here's the, the strongest argument which the guys use that are for homosexual practice. They say that the word unnatural, because the word unnatural is used, it's ta- Paul is talking about heterosexuals who go after homosexuals. And they say that's why it's unnatural. Because when a homosexual joins with another homosexual, it's natural. Okay? So they're saying that is what Paul is referring to here. That's one of the, that's one of the big arguments. Let's just take it apart with love. because It's just ridiculous. And I'm not here trying to be clever or just be horrible to people who uh, struggle with homosexual feelings. I'm just saying, come on, we need, these are godly indignation when people just, just make up things. And say, this is what Paul meant. When it's it's clear that he didn't. Four reasons why Paul didn't mean that. Number one, would a heterosexual be consumed with passion for someone of the same sex? I don't think so. I just think, I don't think that's going to happen. Number two, the phrase contrary to nature in the Greek ten paraphusin is a stock phrase in ethical Greek literature of the time for homosexual behaviour per se. It's not talking about heterosexuals wanting to be with a homosexual. It's talking about hope. Homosexual behaviour per se. Number three, does the Bible even distinguish between heterosexuals and homosexuals in that kind of way? Does it create these two different kinds of people? No. It's what I said to you at the start. It doesn't. It doesn't do that. It just says some people do this practice. The Bible says we're all the same. In fact, many, many psychologists and all the sociologists now are saying, actually, people, you can't really talk about homosexuality. It's more, it's more human pansexuality. We're corrupt. Our sexuality is corrupt. We sometimes find ourselves being aroused by things that embarrass and ashamed us because we're fallen. We're corrupt. And you can't just say, this is this, this is this. It doesn't work like that. It's just a totally ridiculous... It's, anthropology is all wrong. That's not what people are like. And fourthly and most importantly, and we're going to use a PowerPoint now, I want to just take you through Paul's argument here and hopefully use it to demonstrate to you from this passage that Paul is using the whole subject of homosexuality to speak into, in a very vivid way, the actual real problem that we've got, which is this, that we have exchanged in our heart our worship of God for the worship of the creature. Now, can you guys that are sitting here see this? Yeah? Okay, I need to move around so I can. (laughs) Is that all right, Dan? Am I all right here, Dan? I've called this the, the exchange. Now, we're just going to work through the passage. I want to show you something. In the Bible, where something's repeated three times, it's saying, listen. 
Right? So when it says, holy, 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 it's saying, hey, you're really holy. Okay? So when it's repeated three times, something's going on which is very in-depth and very emphasised, get this. Now there's a pattern that's, that's, that happens here. It's a three-step pattern that happens three times in three phases. So let's look, on the, let's look at the next slide and we'll have a look at this. We he, see here the phase one of the three steps. In verses 22 to 23 it says this. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's what we have done. We've become foolish, we've exchanged the glory of God for other images resembling mortal man. There are other things in the passage as well, animals, etc., etc. How does God respond? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God says, fine. You want to do that? Do it. That's the judgment of God. God says, go for it then. And what is the result of this? To the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 24. Okay, so there's three steps that's phase one. You're going to see it again. Uh, let me just conclude by giving you a quote from a guy called John Piper. He says this. He puts it like this. In response to the rejection of God's glory as their treasure, God wills that there be a disordering of their bodily life in dishonourable deeds. The sexual disordering of the human race is a judgment of God for our exchanging him for the creature, all of us. Next slide. See it again. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God's response. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions. What did that look like? Verses 26 and 27, the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. There it is again, the same thing, only more explicit. So here we see even more vividly now that the sexual disordering of the human race and especially homosexuality is a judgment of God for our exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I know there are questions that will be raising now. I'm going to hit some of those in a minute. Okay. So, Phase 3, verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, there we go again. God's response, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. There he goes again. What happens? To do what ought not to be done. What ought not to be done. That is the Bible's way of referring to homosexual practice. I want to give you a conclusion now that's going to do some of your heads in because of the size of the writing. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, just getting used to PowerPoint, you know. Uh, I didn't know. I got I got stuck in terms of creating a new slide, and it all went wrong. So we'll blow it. You know, technically challenged. But <laughs> let me just try to conclude. I, I want to just to stop now. If it helps you to close your eyes, you can take it down later. I can email it to you or whatever. Just think now. I want to just give you the big picture now, going from Genesis. Concentrate, please. From the beginning, manhood and womanhood existed to dramatise God's relation to his people, and Christ's relation to his bride, the church. Are you with that? Manhood and womanhood exist to dramatise that. We're not just here for ourselves. We dramatise in the relation between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. We we dramatise something of the relationship between God and his people, Christ and his bride. You find God using that analogy all the way through the Bible. Step two, sexual union in the covenant of marriage represents pure, undefiled, intense heart worship. That is, God means for the beauty of worship to be dramatised in the right ordering of our sexual lives. Which is why the marriage thing is a big deal. Because it's in covenant. And our relationship with God is in covenant. It's not casual. We enter into covenant with him. That's why marriage is much more than a bit of paper. It's the covenant. It's deeply symbolic spiritually. Something is being dramatised of a spiritual reality as that man and woman commit lifelong to love one another and only them and be joined together in that way. But instead, we have exchanged the glory of God for images, especially of ourselves. Therefore, in judgment, God decrees this breakdown of our relationship to him be dramatised in the disordering of our sexual relations with each other. Casual sex, sex by ourselves, if you understand what I'm getting at there, in terms of, you know, sort of chronic masturbation and all the stuff that goes on in the fantasy world. Um, Sex with those of the same sex, etc., etc. Homosexuality is the most vivid form of that breakdown. 
God and man in covenant worship are represented by male and female in covenant sexual union. Therefore, when man turns from God to him of himself, God hands us over to what we have chosen and dramatizes it by male and female turning to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex. John Piper concludes by saying this, the healing of the homosexual soul, as with every other soul, will be the return of the glory of God to its rightful place in our affections. You understand this? What he's saying is this, is that this whole deal is not, it's not a case of, this is God's story, oh and by the way, Christians believe homosexuality is wrong. Okay, it's not disjointed like that. We're saying this is one of the most vivid demonstrations of how we have fallen away from him and how that is dramatised and it is a manifestation of the wrath of God in the sense that God has given us over to that. So just to conclude, biblical so-called arguments put forward by those who claim they believe the Bible and there's nothing wrong with homosexual practice or a house of cards. There's nothing to them, there's no substance to them. The perversion of homosexuality is intimately and vividly woven into the fabric of what it means to be alienated from God and endorses the big story. It's not disconnected. So does this mean that those who are same-sex attracted are more alienated or more sinful, etc., than those who are attracted to the opposite sex? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We all pick up different symptoms of our common state of fallenness. And I believe there are varying factors, possibly genetic, we'll look at that, most probably hormonal, environmental, choice. There are many different factors that come together and that are involved and there are complexities there. But spiritually the thing is reflective of a huge theological truth. So what of the person who is currently struggling with the agony of being sexually attracted to those of the same sex and yet agreeing with what the Bible teaches? and desperately wanting to follow Jesus and be free. What does the church have to say to such a person? It's very important that we spend the last ten minutes looking at this. What I want to say, if there are such people here today, and I don't say this in a trite, in a kind of a just sentimental way, you are genuinely very welcome. And you're genuinely, I want you to know that you're loved by God. And you're loved here. I mean that. Absolutely. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. The Bible says that. There's no difference. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. I could spend two weeks on greed. Or two weeks on anger. I'm spending two weeks on this because of the confusion around the subject. And I think people need to be clear what the Bible says. That's why we're spending two weeks on it. Not because it's the worst one. But as well as you being welcome, I want you to know that we are a community that are committed to seeing the healing power of Jesus Christ in our midst. Committed to that. Totally believe God for that. For fundamental transformation. Totally believe God for that. And because I do not believe that homosexual orientation is part of your God-given personhood or identity, I do believe that God can and definitely does change that in people. I do. What is broken, Jesus fixes. What is out of kilter, he puts right as we submit to him. I don't believe people can be changed by willpower alone. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, but your will must be fully engaged. If you don't want it, you won't. So the will is involved, but it's God who does the changing. What if no healing seems to come? I've got one, one a very, very close friend of mine. Is, you know, he's been a believer now for 13 years, come out of a you know, seriously you know, active homosexual lifestyle. Just loves the Lord, loves the Lord, loves the Lord. Still struggles like mad. Still struggles like mad, you know. Um, been celibate all that time, you know. He's, he's had his temptations, but he's been celibate all that time. So it's not, I'm not sort of speaking out of just some kind of ivory tower, I don't know what this is like, you know. I'm a good friend of his, and I know the pain. But what, 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 you know, you say, well, what, what to do in the meantime? Well, I'm on the journey, I'm not quite through it yet. What to do? What if no healing seems to come? What do I do? Well, I would genuinely say this as a church, we are committed to helping you find the courage, the support, and the power to live a triumphant and a joyful celibate life. You might think that's unrealistic. No, it's not. 
Many, many, many Christians who call themselves heterosexual, who are attracted to the opposite sex, live celibately for years. Many, many, many. Until they find the right marriage partner or for life. So it's not unrealistic. Is it always easy? Well, no. But is life always easy for any of us? We just need to be clear. I mean, is it? You know, do we all just breeze through? Of course we don't. What if you're coming out of a background of homosexual activity and you realise that even though you're, 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 you've repented, you're not in it anymore, you just feel like I'm carrying baggage from that. I'm still hurting. I'm still... What to do? Well, it's not surprising, first of all. It's not to be surprised. Let me read to you from David Cross, who wrote the book Soul Ties. He says this, Homosexual and lesbian feelings are a dysfunction of how God intended us to recognise and express our sexuality. These distorted feelings are the consequence of damage to the identity of a person from a number of different causes. The Bible clearly teaches that the practice of homosexuality and lesbianism, that is, expressing our sexual feelings by offering our bodies to another person of the same sex, is sinful. And so any such relationship will establish powerful, ungodly ties between those that are involved. You feel that's you? You want help? Come and see me. I'll pray with you. We'll break those ties. We'll see, we'll see healing come. If we, I mean, I think this makes it sound so simple. I'm not trying to be naive or anything of the sort, but isn't it time that the church restored some confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit? <gasps> I mean, biblically, what are we taught here? That God is committed to making us increasingly like Jesus. He does it. You've got to watch, watch you don't tolerate unbelief in your mind and reason, well, no, he's just, he's, he's totally detached from reality. Ask yourself, is what I'm saying biblical? Because you need to be in utter confidence that what he has started, he will complete. Amen? He will. He will. But in the meantime, you are completely accepted and beloved in him. In this room, there are countless stories of victory after victory over all manner of sins and shameful deeds, aren't there? We won't go into detail. In this victory, there are countless, countless victories. How? The cross. The cross. That's the answer. At the cross, Jesus took on sin. He took on Satan. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He won. He won. The Bible says he leads us in triumphal procession. Now, triumphalism is ugly. People just act like, you know, you read some of these Christian literature, you think, man, alive, I don't know where you live. It's a different planet from where I live. You know? Of course we suffer. Of course there are hardships. Absolutely. But God's will for us is this, that in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's what the Bible teaches. Now to them, those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. The Bible says that. But to us who are being saved, Jesus Christ, the crucified man, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to just gather back in and break bread and worship the Lord. I know that was heavy. The next two weeks are going to be heavy. Stay with me. Sometimes, you know, we just have to work through this stuff. I know some of you are thinking, man, I'm alive, it's supposed to be my day off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But we, you, you will increasingly, you need to be clear on it, because it's going to be increasingly difficult to take this stance in our society unless God breaks in and just brings a huge revival. It will be, you will be increasingly seen as um, gay-hating. Gay bashing, that whole, you will, be, you will be seen in that camp. And we have to what, say, no, I'm not in that camp. I mean, a different thing. But I believe it's wrong. And you've got to know why you believe what you believe on these, on these matters. So even though it's heavy, it takes some brain work, please, I would just ask you, stay engaged, keep coming, process it, think it through, so that you're equipped to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. The band are going to come back up and lead us in a song, and Jen's going to come and lead us now in the bread and wine. You're right, Jen.